This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and I'm talking to Tim Westergren, who is the founder of Pandora and co-founder of Sessions. And when I first met him so long ago, he was the founder of the Music Genome Project, which means we're both very old. <laughs> and we've known each other for a long time. Hi, Tim. Nice to see you. Hey, good to be here, Peter. We'll, we'll, we'll go back in history, but why don't you tell us what you're doing now? It's, it's a live streaming music platform. Yeah, so you know, I, I didn't think I'd get back into music to be honest. After you know, everyone so. who was in digital music says, "I will never go back." <laughs> and I thought I really meant it, but um, yeah. So the company's called Sessions. Uh, the product is it's kind of a marriage of live streaming and virtual gaming. So it's a I, I put this together with a, a, a couple of gentlemen that had spent a long time building a very successful franchise of virtual games, free to play games, and they had developed these kind of superpowers of how to acquire users and, you know, the whole virtual economy thing. And we essentially repurposed that and uh, built a platform for musicians to perform that we launched in beta a little over a year ago. Um, and it's really starting to work. And it's allowing musicians to not just play for an audience, but actually earn money. And I think it has, it's going to really be an important company in the coming years. So, Tim, there are a bunch of places that you can stream music live on the internet. Um, you said you launched a year ago, which I assume you were not planning on a pandemic when you when you launched. <laughs> but there was a lot of interest in live streaming music um, mm -hmm. uh, once the, the pandemic kicked in for obvious reasons. We spent a little time talking about that. And it seemed like there were some specialty apps like yours. A lot of people were trying, you know, Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think a lot was happening on Instagram. And then I haven't heard about it very much since mm -hmm. then. Just the idea of streaming concerts. It seemed like it was kind of a, what are we going to do in March and April? We're bored. And then <laughs> I didn't hear about it much since then. So what, what's sort of, what's the state of, of live streaming music today? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Cause live streaming has been around for a long time. Sure. You know, it's not new. Uh, COVID ha has, of course, raised its visibility. But it's kind of been, in some ways to me, a surprise that, this medium hasn't thrived more. And, you know, we thought a lot about that when we were sort of architecting the product. And, you know, on the one hand, it has all the ingredients in theory to be a very successful platform for musicians. You know, it starts with what I think is a musician's most valuable asset, which is a live performance that people still pay for <laughs> in mm -hmm. this day and age. And the ability to kind of scale that ostensibly to, you know, global audience uh, and not being limited by geography. And then... With all these sort of newfound mechanisms for virtual uh, tipping, if I mean we don't use the word tipping, but that's kind of the the, uh, the term of art right now, you'd think that it would be more successful, and it hasn't been. Um, and I think there are a couple reasons, and they're pretty simple. Uh, one is because no one has found the successful formula for marketing these events, um, so not a lot of people are showing up. And the second thing is when they get there. This is not an uh, industry that has understood the virtual monetization game. And it is a science uh, that gaming has perfected, you know, over the course of, you know, what, mm -hmm. 15, 20 years. But that's brand new to music. So you got a bunch of musicians and kind of ex-music people launching live streaming services, but they're not steeped in virtual economics. And if you don't know it, if it's not in your DNA, it's really hard to get it right. So that's kind of why I think it hasn't made more noise, you know, barring a few kind of notable exceptions. The thing about that I think about with live streaming music is that I could definitely see it 
scratching an itch I had on any particular day. But traditionally, most people don't go to concerts more than once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. um, partly they're doing it, right, to be around other people. And then the other thing is they want to see the, the band they like. Yeah. Um, and once you start streaming live on the internet, the scarcity goes away, right? Mm -hmm. I can see it once. I'm not, certainly not going to go <laughs> see it the fifth night that Erica Badu is doing something, even unless you're a hardcore fan. And then I think that's separate from, am I buying a ticket to see this thing versus am I tipping? How do you deal with the, the scarcity and, and novelty issue? Um, I was on your site just earlier, and, and you know, there's bands and performers I've heard of, and I could see paying to see them once, and then mm -hmm. I think my experience would be done. Yeah, it's a great question, and I think the answer to that depends on the artist. So there are artists who don't make, it doesn't make sense for them to play more than once, you know, two or three times a year, but there's a spread. So now we have a couple thousand artists playing every week now, performing. Some of them play three or four hours a week, and they're like workhorses. It's a bit like, you know, the person who has the Thursday through Saturday stand at the local pub. Uh -huh. They're there every week, and they have their audience that knows them, and they have a relationship with them, and it grows over time. And we're seeing these artists, you know, really earning a living as, you know, regular performing musicians. Now, that's not what an established artist would do. But the beauty of this is you can essentially flex depending on what fits sort of your profile and, and your kind of plans as a musician. So we see kind of a range of, of habits. But, I mean, from the consumer's perspective, right? Like, you know, I could see putting the live music on in the background while I'm doing something, and I can see, <laughs> I want to see this performance. I'm going to pay money or at least spend my time and attention on this. Yeah. And if I went to the pub more than once on the weekend, it's a different <laughs> issue. But, but I could see, like, oh, it's nice that they're in the background. It's hard yeah. for me to sort of translate that to my house. And I think that's a lot, you know— Watching a movie in a theater versus watching it at home, there's mm -hmm. there's pros and cons, but it's the same experience and same sort of level of attention and time and, and yeah. specialness. And I think music, it's just harder to sort of make that case to anyone who's not a hardcore fan of a particular act. Yeah, yeah, another good point. And again, I think this uh, speaks to, I think, preconceived notions that people have that come from music or even as music fans have of this, which is just like pay-per-view. It's a bit like, okay... Mm -hmm. This is a show that I can't see in the real world, and now it's being broadcast to me online. So it's kind of a you know a consumptive experience. But the difference with live streaming, if it's done right, is that it's an interactive one. So part of what makes these shows successful and what allows these musicians to thrive the way they are is that there's a relationship and an interaction that goes on when they play. It's a conversation. They're developing a relationship. And, and so people actually don't put it on the background. It's the thing they're doing at that mm -hmm. moment. And they're engaging with the artist. They're, they're interested in the artist. And they kind of come become part of that artist's crew. It's a bit like a guild in a game. And so you start to see the same sort of behavior that you see in games where people are kind of gathering around an artist, both with the artist and with each other. And it becomes more than just this kind of one-off, you know, one-and-done kind of... Um, passive experience. What did you think of, uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, hype this summer about live concerts and Fortnite um, <laughs> and what that did or didn't mean. And now, uh, um, I used to say I'm obliged in every podcast to mention Substack. Now I have to say Clubhouse in every Substack. Uh, in every <laughs> Clubhouse in every podcast. Um, which certainly seems like it could be uh, a live audio, a live music platform in addition to AM talk radio. Um, I mean, I'm assuming you're going to say these are good 
positive poof points in what we're doing? Or are you, are you doing something that's different, so different that it's kind of not applicable to whatever's happening in Fortnite or Clubhouse? Yeah, well, I mean, everything's a little different. Fortnite is a giant platform, and it's, it's tailor-made to insert these kinds of things, um, these musical performances, and you create these virtual spaces, which is you know like the whole thing the game's built around. They've got all the ingredients to make that successful, and I think it's going to continue. Um, I know that a lot of, on the industry side, the music industry is, is eager to do more of that. I think what we're doing is a little different. You know, it's a dedicated concert place, and what I can tell you is, our platform is growing exponentially on in every dimension, and it seems to me. Uh, that there's really no limit to how large it can become based on what we see so far. You know, the the appetite, well, the, the, the amount of talent that's around, the desire and willingness of artists to, you know, play frequently and to invest the time they need to to make the platform work. And then fans interested in both in attending and becoming patrons. Standard platform question. Why would a user or an artist work with you guys instead of, Instagram or any other platform. A lot of people do live streaming. Um, I signed up to watch a Patton Oswalt comedy show at some point this summer, yeah. and I don't know what service I used. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know that he advertised it on Twitter, and I clicked on a link and put mm-hmm. my card, and it worked fine. Yeah. Um. I, 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 again, I can't. I literally can't remember the name of the service I used to do it, and I don't have any intention of going back there unless he tells me to. Yeah, that's another great question, and I think when it comes to sort of you know. The broadcast show of a well-known artist, I think it's hard to distinguish one platform from another. It's just a concert, you know, just one venue to another. The reason that artists are coming to sessions is because we're actually investing in marketing every show. So we're actually generating audience for them. And that is actually probably the single most differentiated, um, well, there's two things. That is one, which is, uh, you know, artists start, uh, for us with no fans, and they start growing their fans. And they're not investing, we're making the investment for them. And in some cases, we're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in a show. So there are actually shows that are generating large audiences and large income. And there are also shows that are generating hundreds of dollars for an artist. And it's because we are actually applying, and I mentioned this earlier, this marketing technology, this acquisition technology. So we're the only place ever in all of digital music ever that actually is investing marketing money in like this long tail. Your pitch is we can get people in the door. Sure, you can go ahead and pitch this on Instagram, but you're not reaching people on Instagram to begin with. Exactly, exactly. And that's the truth. I mean, the, 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 the thing about live streaming, if you look around, there are lots of live streams, thousands of them, but the audiences are anemic. And it's because nobody, neither the artist nor the platform have the wherewithal that means to bring people in a way that makes sense. So they can they could spend a lot of money to draw an audience, but they'll lose money on the show. Yeah, I guess the flip side is if you're doing it on an Instagram or a Twitch, it's pretty, it's especially, you know, depending on who your audience is, they're probably there to begin with. No, right? they're not. No. And that's the thing, that is the big misconception that artists have. They think, I okay, walk right into your trap. I'll, I'll, I'll play on Instagram and, and I'll put a post out to my audience and they will come. Well, the truth is, and when you put a post to Instagram, you reach maybe 4%, 4 to 5% of your audience. If you want to reach more, you got to pay. Mm-hmm. So the truth is that your audience is not there. You're renting them. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're, you know this, when you're out to, to try to reach your Instagram followers, you're competing with everybody else. You're just another advertiser. So no, just being on Instagram is not enough. And that 
is the mirror of like, you know, being a band, you know, you could play in the greatest club in town, but with a great sound system, but if it's in the quiet part of town with no foot traffic and you don't have an ability to draw fans, you're wasting your time. And that's what I think is happening for the vast majority of live streaming. Um, so we mentioned early on that you've been in the music business before. You, you came back. We'll, we'll bring it full circle, but um, we could spend two hours on, on Pandora and Music <laughs> Genome Project. Um, and I think some people who listen to this will know your story, but it's a pretty interesting one because you did not set off to start a giant music streaming service. No. You, you're a former musician and an engineer, and you had this novelty idea about, uh, or a novel idea about classifying music so people could sort it out. I remember talking to you when you were still thinking that you were going to put kiosks in Best Buys so people who were looking for CDs would yeah. be able to figure out what they wanted. So that's, again, how old and how old we are. Yeah. What did you learn from the Pandora experience that you're, you're bringing to this project? That's a good question. Um, so a couple of things. So one, you know, so I, I spent 17 years at a little over 17 years at Pandora. And, you know, after the first four or five years where we were kind of lost in the wilderness trying to do whatever we could to survive, we know that we launched this consumer product and it just exploded. And, you know, before we knew it, we had 100 million users. And that was and the streaming service. Right, Pandora. And, and that was when we repurposed the Music Genome Project, kind of did the classic pivot and became a consumer company. And it just exploded. And, and before we knew it, we were a substantial portion of all of radio listening in the U.S. I mean, like 10 or 12 percent, some huge number. And so we were actually a significant part of listening. And I think at our peak, we probably generated maybe a billion and a half in revenue. And we gave 70 percent of that to the industry in, in royalties. So it was a well-run business. You know, we monetized very efficiently on, the, on an hour, on a per hour basis, definitely compared to broadcast radio. But in the end, for the average musician on Pandora, it amounted to you know a thirty dollars check every couple of months. Um, so we weren't. What I learned was, you can build a great big platform, and one that consumers love, and that is building a good business. I mean, it was a multi-billion-dollar business eventually, and that does reward some number of artists very well. But still, that's not going to change the fundamental economic condition of a musician. And that was the great to me the great kind of. Um, the painful part of that whole experience was was uh, as, as much as we were doing to try to bring exposure and visibility and fandom to musicians, we couldn't change their sort of fundamental plight. So that was kind of the biggest thing I took away from Pandora. And in the subsequent years, when I thought about, you know, what else could I do? That was always a lens I looked through. Like, am I going to do something that will actually make a difference? And, that's and just to I, be clear, right, you, this, you're paying out a dollar, 70 cents of every dollar that you bring in is going to people who own music, but right. that's different than going to musicians, right? It's going to labels and publishers and uh, collection groups. I mean, so it, it, by the time it filters down to an individual artist, it's pennies. Yeah. So, I mean, there's different things give rise to the low compensation. Sometimes it's a, a function of multiple middlemen, but underneath it all, the, the actual raw figure, when you spread it out over hundreds of thousands of, you know, of artists that were on the platform, is just not that much um, because you're getting paid just, you know, a small fraction of a penny per stream. And on sessions, it's the complete opposite. You know, it is a direct compensation platform that's incredibly efficient. So, you know, an artist, these, we, we had a bunch of artists that joined early on, maybe 150 of them. We, 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 we uh, recruited them to come play. And these were amateur hobbyists that, you know, wanted to, maybe wanted to play, but, but had not had any experience doing that. 
And of those 150 artists, I'm going to say maybe 40, 45 of them now are earning anywhere from three or four or $700 per hour uh, playing home at home. And we had an artist play a couple months ago who made $10,000 in an hour, and she had never been paid to play before in the world. And I think that she could not fill a coffee house with fans, but here she was, one show, $10,000. And so like it's economically, it, it's, it's a much more effective way to remunerate musicians. I was surprised, I can't remember when this was, because I, I remember like going to a, a meetup with you in, in New York City, you got rented out a theater and people, you had just people tripping over each other, don't tell you how much they, they like Pandora. And so you had, a, you had a fan base of people who loved you. And then over time you became like the, uh, you know, literally your logo would be on, you know, boxes mm-hmm. at Best Buy. And so people were consuming you that they didn't know you, but they, li- they liked you. And there was a general sort of like Pandora is an underdog and there's a lot of yeah. goodwill because they're trying to fix the music business or change it. And then at some point I realized that the music labels and then even musicians had a lot of enmity towards you. They felt like that you were ripping them off. Did, was that yeah. always sort of apparent to you or was that a shift over time? No, it's a, it was a shift and you're right. And it was, it was what I just was speaking about, which is... Uh, musicians were watching this company become very large and successful and not seeing very much compensation on a per musician basis. And we were always haunted by this sort of headline that the, the, the payment per stream was a fraction of a penny, just didn't sound or, or look good. Now, I think that the enmity people had was very misplaced because the problem wasn't with Pandora per se. You know, it was a much, much larger structural problem. But I mean, yeah, Spotify we ends up having to make the same argument today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, 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 that argument will hit every platform. And at a larger level, I really think that the music industry has sort of been unwittingly recruited uh, to um, its own demise. Because I think that musicians and the industry broadly have been working very hard to create uh, value for primarily Facebook, Instagram, and a handful of subscription companies. And the result of that is they've lost their audience and their income is all secondhand as a share of someone else's business. And those businesses are not the music business. Facebook and Instagram are in the advertising business, Spotify's in the subscription business, Apple's in the hardware business, and music is kind of a convenient piece of content for that. And I, I fear, and I think that this is being borne out, that the, the, the longer that goes on, the more and more the music industry shrinks, shrinks to like that small island of CDs in the back of a Walmart where, you know, yes, they sell music, but the reason the music is there is because they want you to drive, walk past the toasters and the refrigerators to get to it. I'm going to break up this conversation for just a minute so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. And we're back. I'm sure you've done a lot of replaying of what happened in Pandora, so forgive me for asking you to do it again. But I'm I'm curious about like a big inflection point for you guys. So you start off as this B2B sort of science project. You realize you have a consumer product. Um, it works. It takes off with the iPhone. I remember it was a big inflection point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it it was a way, if people haven't used Pandora or forgot how, what Pandora was like, you it wasn't on-demand music. You would tell it the right. kind of stuff you liked and it would play it for you. And, and the reason you were able to do that was sort of, there was legislation in the U.S. that allowed you to do that without paying super onerous rates. That's right, And yeah. those would be debated. So it was this kind of um, constraint, this business you created out of a constraint. Yes. Which then found 
around a, a, a big market. Yes. Um, and so that worked really well. And then you flash to Spotify. There were a bunch of people who were doing on-demand music, but Spotify makes it accessible, easy for everyone to get the music they want for free. I mean, guess yeah. YouTube had done that too. And you can just pick the songs. You don't have to wait for Pandora to give you a song you think you yeah. might like. Did you realize at that moment that that was going to be sort of a, a an existential threat to you? Or do you think there's a way that we can provide a version of this that will still work? No, that was our big blunder. I mean, we did not understand the hazard of that on-demand music posed to our business. And we thought two things. We thought, one, that you know, radio and passive listening would always dominate music consumption, which it had for you know, decades, of course. And the second thing was we thought that we would be able to uh, exist safely inside the, the uh, statutory agreements that, that essentially you know, protected internet radio. And neither of those turned out to be true. You know, so people began wanting on-demand. And even if on-demand was every now and then, if someone else offered every now and then, they could satisfy that and give like some maybe less good version of our radio that we started to bleed users. And, but we just, you know, we kind of had a sacred cow. We hung on to it for too long. That's kind of what happened. I mean, eventually there was going to be a, pan, I think maybe there still is a Pandora sort of on-demand music service. But at that point, yeah, it's too late. Horses long gone. Right. Um, and you left in 2017. I remember right. probably sitting in this room trying to confirm the story that you were leaving <laughs> so I could publish it before it was out there. I think My I did God, too. Yes. <laughs> um, but it seemed like the writing had been on the wall for a while. You guys had gone public and done okay, and then you were struggling, and then Sirius was sort of floating around. It, it, what led to, walk me through sort of how you were, you were removed or pushed or jumped from Pandora and what that experience was like. Yeah, so, you know, what happened was, um, it was a hard business. I mean, we went public, but... You know, it was a hard company to be public with because our royalty, uh, our sort of our big costs were so uncertain. Um, and the business had, run so, had to be run so tightly, it was hard to innovate. And so we essentially, you know, for a while we had a very healthy trajectory and then we just started to run into these sort of these problems and our stock collapsed dramatically over the course of about a year and a half. And when that happened, activists got in the stock. And what I came to learn is, you know, when you're a public company, activists can make a lot of trouble. And yeah, as you said- Explain, uh, explain what an activist is, because I think people, uh, I think we used to call them green mailers, right? Um, <laughs> in the old days. Um, and there's pros and cons to what they do, but explain, explain what an activist shareholder does if you're running that company where they're, yeah. share, where they're, act, where they're active. So, <laughs> so an activist is essentially someone who uh, sees a company in some distress, typically, and comes in and buys a substantial share stock and with a plan that if they can get you to do something as a company, that stock would go up in value. And typically that is to sell the business or to sell parts of the business. And so what they do is they become active in trying to get you to do something they want you to do. In our case, it was sell the company. And they do uh, that by, they, they're loud and they talk to people like me and uh, they can demand a board seat, right? But they can't run the company. They can't. They can make your life very difficult. Um, and I, you know, there's, there's a whole cottage industry that surrounds activism that, that once you get in the grips of an activist, it, it does make it difficult for you to manage your investor base. And if you have a, an acquirer out there who really wants to buy you, they can take advantage of it. And so we kind of, we wound up trapped by that dynamic and ultimately weren't able to 
sort of stick on our own independent path uh, because the sort of the acquirer was able to do something attractive enough to the base of investors to, you know, kind of um, win. And when that happened, uh, the very 11th hour, when I saw that it was going to be acquired by them, I decided to, you know, to leave. Was there a path for you to, because they didn't formally acquire it, right? They got, they bought a big chunk of it and with sort of a path to control. Yeah. yeah. So was there, a, was there a path for you to stay on? And yeah. I mean, oftentimes they don't want the person who's running the company to keep running the company, but was that an option for you? Yeah, no, I was welcome to stay on and, and help help sort of, they wanted me to stay on and, and, and they were going to hire their own CEO, which is, you know, understandable. And I'd kind of work alongside them, but you know, I'd been there for a long time at that point. And I also think that I, I didn't think I'd be able to pursue the vision that I had had for that company from that point on. So it would have been like babysitting, you know, a company that someone else is really controlling. And that was hard. So you'd been there 17 years, pretty much the only job you'd had, right? I mean, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> um, it's your baby. Now it's someone else's baby. What's the next period like for you? Do you, do you say, I, I'm, I'm, we're getting on a boat and we're leaving the country and, and, you know, you made some money over the, over the course of your time there. Um, Do you think you would get back into tech and startups? Well, the funny thing about, well, my own experience at least is I didn't, I didn't know which way it was going to go till the very end. We actually had another alternative major financing that was being worked on that almost got there and and very at the very 11th hour didn't. So it was kind of, who who was that with? It was with KKR and some Uh other, and some other folks. Um, And, and so it actually was really in the, couple of days leading up to the announcement we were you know could have been <laughs> gone one way or the other and so it was very abrupt and and i found myself literally you know one day we were on this path the next day i might well, i was leaving the office with my box of stuff and it was just very disorienting for a while and it took a long time for me to kind of um, sort of uh reconcile to this new like that i wasn't there anymore again when you found something that's also its own thing right it's your company and and you, you pour yourself into it. I did it for two decades, almost half my life. And so it took a while for me just to kind of get my balance again. Uh, I took kind of a year off and I spent a year at a venture fund just to kind of um, get on the other side of the table. You know, I'd been pitching venture capital for many years and, and, and wanted to see that and, and, and also wanted to do some work with entrepreneurs. Um, and it was in the context of being with a VC that I met the, the folks that end up being co-founders of, of Sessions. Um, so it was, you know, a three-year period in there where I eventually found a new place to... But you, ne- you never ever like, fuck this, I'm, I'm never going back to tech. I'm going to, um, I'm me and my cell. What do you play? Are you a cellist? I'm a pianist. Pianist, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do that. I, I can afford to do that. I don't want to go touch this stuff ever again. I've had, I certainly don't want to touch VCs or financing. <laughs> no, I didn't have that attitude. And now you guys are a long way from this. You've raised some money, you're venture-backed, it's tough space. But in mm. theory... I mean, who knows how long these conditions will last? I mean, I could see a report that says you're being rolled up into a SPAC and you're now a you're now a public company. And is the public company experience something that you would do again? Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, look, I think uh, Pandora's experience as a public company was a bit of um, Jekyll and Hyde. You know, on the one hand, we were a beloved company, a beloved brand. We had a we had like 40 analysts covering us. You know, when we went to speak at conferences, the room was full. We, I mean, we had the full attention of Wall Street. You know, we got a P for our symbol. And, you know, we had, you know, in lots of ways, we had a lot of support 
from the investor community. I think people wanted the company to succeed. I mean, investors used it themselves and their kids did too. You know, it was a popular, beloved consumer product. There's a and guy listening is, to the, there's a guy listening to this podcast that, that loved you guys so much that he bought the IPO stock and then loved you less <laughs> after that. So hi Jim. Well, um, it was uh, so that was a uh, fascinating, uh, fun, and you know, uh, um, great experience. Then the, the flip side is the business itself was just really tough because you know it was an advertising business um, and uh, it was very competitive space. People, you know, she so were fighting for users all the time, and and also we had um, a very tricky relationship with the content providers, right, with le- and musicians and labels that we're trying to navigate, and 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 that it's hard to play that in public. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a, it was a mixture. It was very intense. I'll say that very intense, but it doesn't make me say I'd never go public again. It does teach me a lot about, you know, how you prepare yourself to be public and how you, when you go public, how you, how you sort of set the table for investors and their expectations and how you manage expectations and so on that I learned a lot. Do you have advice for um, what looks to be like a slew of people who've been running private companies who are suddenly going to be public in the next day or month or six months, however long this boom goes on for? The whole SPAC thing you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, there, the, the good thing about SPACs is that I do think that there is a need because there are lots of good companies, healthy, growing companies that are just too small and can't attract the attention of, you know, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley. And so they don't get listed and, and they should, they, they could be public. And so it's a market. The flip side, of course, like you said, it's massively crowded now. And, and I'm sure we're going to see all sorts of crazy offerings that crater the moment the redemptions happen. And and um, and, and there's going to be a bunch of, you know, be books written about how, you know, SPACs destroyed tons of companies. Um, my advice for entrepreneurs is just because a SPAC wants to take you public and tells you all the things you want to hear about your business, don't take that for, you know, face value. You have to look yourself in the mirror and use hard, cold analysis to decide for yourself, are you prepared to um, to be in the public eye and to make promises you have to keep? Do you have enough confidence over your ability to predict your business and to project your business? Because if you don't, it's going to be incredibly painful because um, you'll make mistakes and you'll get clobbered for them. And then, you know, what you thought was kind of a healthy, you know, like vibrant company culture will get like pummeled because your employees will be reading about how awful you are every day in the news, <laughs> Peter. Uh, and No, uh, <laughs> no, I didn't write those stories. No. And and then you'll have to, you know, um, it'll be a different reality. It won't be so fun. Um, so yeah, be careful. Um, let's bring it back to sessions. So mm. we're recording this mid-February. Mm. Dr. Fauci says in April, by April, they'll yeah. sort of have taken the restrictions off, and most of America who wants to can start getting vaccinated. Um, Live Nation stock is is shooting super high because people yeah. think people are going to be tearing out of their house and to go to the first <laughs> concert they can. Whatever the time period is for normalcy or whatever new normal is, um, presumably, I'm assuming there will be less demand for people to yeah. watch concerts at home. So how are you thinking yeah. about that? Yeah, well, I think that if your business depends on, you know, live streaming from high profile artists, you're going to get hammered when when the real world opens up for sure. But there's also a truth. And, and uh, you know, when we started this business, it was long before COVID was, you know, 
even mm-hmm. or known. Um, it wasn't created because we thought demand would be there because of a pandemic. It's because the truth is that there's very little opportunity for live music for musicians, you know, in, in, in the general, you know, in general. And playing live is phenomenally hard as a career. And live streaming is a, a huge, potentially hugely valuable revenue stream that can live alongside anything you do in your you know, physical world career. So that's one. The second thing is, you know, there is a giant population of musicians that never have never played clubs and never will. And for them, this is an opportunity to have an audience. And we, we see them on, on sessions. They are talented. They work hard. People love listening to them. They develop serious, loyal fans. And they just don't happen to have a club nearby that they can play at. Um, you know, the barriers to entry for a live performance are actually very, very high. So I'm actually not... Yes, there will be a softening, no doubt about it, among established artists when, when, um, when COVID subsides. But it's going to still be a huge demand for this. I mean, this is the question we're all asking ourselves and have been for the last year. And well, there'll be a slew of one-year anniversary of the pandemic stories coming out any mm-hmm. day now about sort of <laughs> what changes that we went through over the last year are permanent and which ones sort of recede when things go back. And so we're asking mm-hmm. that about shopping and going to the office and sure. travel and, and certainly music and entertainment are one of those. And the truth is it's a question mark, right? Yep. We just don't know. Yes, I think that's fair. I, I think it's fair. Well, I wish you luck, Tim. And I Thank look you, forward to seeing you in person at <laughs> some point when we can travel again. And uh, great to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you again, Peter. Take care. That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring the show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.